0: From Luminary and Built-It Productions, it's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, why being a singular leader means involving everyone. There's
1: a real difference between a leader that constantly says, I, versus a leader who says, we. Mm -hmm. And I really believe in the we part of the equation.
0: David Novak and leading by bringing everyone along.
2: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either.
0: David Novak's been a driving force behind some of the most ubiquitous brands in fast food, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and KFC among them. He's the co-founder and former CEO of Yum! Brands, one of the biggest players in the quick service restaurant industry. On top of all that, David's taken the lessons he's learned over the course of his career and built it into programs taught through his company, David Novak Leadership, and at the University of Missouri. David's also written massive bestsellers in the business and leadership category, including Taking People With You, The Education of an Accidental CEO, Oh Great One, and his very latest, co-authored with Jason Goldsmith, Take Charge of You, How Self-Coaching Can Transform Your Life and Career. One of David's secret weapons as a leader at places like Pepsi and KFC was his ability to quickly get the lay of the land and connect with the people who work for and with him. It's something he started learning to do as a kid. By the time David was in seventh grade, his family had lived in 32 trailer parks across 23 states. His dad was a government surveyor. He worked on the longitude and latitude marks that form the foundation of the GPS system. And his surveying work took the family all over the middle of the United States. Actually, I think it
1: was the greatest upbringing anybody could ever have.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Why is that?
1: Well, you know, my mom would check me into these schools. And by the way, my mom just turned uh, 92 years old today. But she would check me into these schools and she'd say, David, you better make friends because we're, we're leaving. Hmm. And she was right. I had three months to basically make friends and get settled and then do it all over again. So it really gave me a great learning experience. I was really able to scope out the situation, look at the people in the class that uh, I really wanted to become friends with. And, you know, one of the things I learned is you're only one good friend away from happiness. Hmm. And if I could just find one good friend uh, and you name the town, it could be Chama, New Mexico or, or, uh, Tucumcari or, or Premont, Texas or Kimball, Nebraska, if I could just find that one person and make a friend with him, uh, you know, my life all, all of a sudden became a lot better and I was happy. Wow. But you know, people always ask me, well, how could you, how could you grow up like that? You know, uh, I lived in a trailer, uh, it was eight feet wide by 46 feet long and, you know, I just thought everybody did it. And, yeah. you know, I don't think I succeeded in spite of my upbringing. I think I succeeded because of it. And it's really kind of funny, no matter where I am with my family, when I get together with my two sisters and my mom and dad, no matter how big the house might be, we always end up sitting on top of each other because, mm. <laughs> you, know, you know, we just, you know, we had that close, we were truly a close knit family in every respect.
0: When you, I know you went to college at the University of Missouri um, to study journalism and, and also a bit of advertising. But was that, your, was that your intention? Did you think that you wanted to go out and become a, a reporter?
1: Well, you know, uh, when I was in high school, I was editor of my high school newspaper, Mm -hmm. a sports editor, and, you know, I knew I had writing skills, and, uh, you know, I thought that that might be my career vocation, but what really happened is I took some advertising courses and absolutely fell in love with them, and once that happened, I I knew that what I wanted to do was get into marketing and advertising, because I really loved, you know, getting inside the heads of consumers and understanding how they think and... uh, you know, I think it's my orientation from traveling around that really made me intuitively become a halfway decent marketer because, you know, you I had to gauge situations and understand how people think and and I realized that's what you have to do in marketing and and advertising and uh you know, that became the the real path for me.
0: And I think this was the mid 70s when you when you embarked on your career in in advertising and I guess you worked for agencies in in Washington D.C. and and Pittsburgh, and then and then in New York before you moved to Dallas uh, to work for the agency Tracy Locke BBDO, where I guess you you worked on some pretty big accounts like Frito Lay and Pepsi, uh, and it sounds like your work there wasn't kind of strictly advertising, but also kind of on like branding and and things like that.
1: Yeah, I worked on creative branding and, and ideas, and my job was to basically provide the strategy for, for all of that work uh, and then work with the advertising creative people to come up with the right solutions and then sell it to the client. But I always viewed myself to be a total business person. You know, one of the things I'm most proud of that I was able to do at to lay was their sales had started to stall and they they needed to have some product news. And I was working on the Doritos account and Nacho Cheese Doritos was the big, big uh, uh, mother load for Doritos. And uh, I said, we need a new flavor. So I took my team and we went to the grocery store and we looked at all the the different uh, items in the grocery store and we stumbled on the salad dressing aisle. And we saw all these facings of uh, ranch flavored dressing. And I, I learned from that trip that ranch dressing was the fastest growing flavor in the <laughs> salad dressing industry so i said what if we put you know some ranch flavoring on Dorito. So I went and met with Dennis Heard, the head of R&D at uh, Frito-Lay, and we created uh, ranch-flavored Doritos. And then we said, "Okay, we need to put a unique image on a known quantity, the known quantity being Doritos and and ranch. And we called it Cool Ranch Doritos. And and that is uh, one of the largest and most successful and profitable products uh, in the grocery store today. Yeah, it's amazing. (laughs) I mean, I remember
0: as a kid when those came out. I I can remember that because, you know, it's such an iconic product. I mean, it is it is amazing. I mean, you you know, it's one of the one of the ways to come up with ideas is to just look around, just just kind yeah. of be in the world and look around you, and yeah. um, that is ultimately how some of these products emerge.
1: Yeah, I think I call it pattern thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, I always believed in doing best practice visits and looking to see what other people are doing in other categories, and then say, hey, if if they're doing it there, how could we do it? Here in a way that works for us. You know, another good example of this is uh, when I was running marketing for Pizza Hut. You know, one of the hot new concepts in the pizza industry at the time was California Pizza Kitchen. Mm. And you've probably been there, but you can get all kinds of different pizzas. So I, I took my team out to Los Angeles and we went in and we ordered Thai chicken pizza and barbecue chicken pizza and all these exotic toppings. And we were really excited by the concept. And I came back and I said, OK, we don't have all these kinds of toppings in a pizza, hut, but what do we have that we could do where we could create our own line of specialty pizzas? Well, we decided we'd just double the number of pepperonis on the pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and we called created uh, pepperoni lovers, yeah. and by the way, it was the most successful new product launch at Pizza I'm Hut not surprised. since pan pizza. Yeah, and then then we said, okay, what about we have a lot of meat? Well, we created beet lovers. Mm-hmm. Then we did cheese lovers. Then we did veggie lovers. And the lovers line of pizza is the biggest line of pizza in the pizza category yeah. today.
0: So you, um, this is a good segue into your time at Pizza. You you move into um, into a management position in marketing at Pizza Hut, I think, around 1986, um, mm-hmm. and and this sort of really, uh, I mean, I think I think earlier as an advertising person working with Frito Lay, that was really the en- your entry point into food. But but going to work for Pizza Hut, it really you begin your journey into the quick service restaurants category. Um, tell me a little bit about. Where Pizza Hut was at the time. I mean, I, I I remember. I mean, it's it's an iconic brand. It's everywhere. But was it the leading pizza brand in the U.S. in in the late '80s?
1: Yes, it was the leading pizza brand in the U.S. in in, in the late '80s, and still is today, as the the most units of any any yeah. uh, pizza brand. Um, and at the time, Pizza Hut was known for being a dine-in restaurant. Right. You know, many people had their first dates the at a Pizza Hut, and <laughs> uh, it was primarily a brand that was located in, and heavily concentrated in the Midwest and small-town America. Um, and the brand was really struggling uh, when I went to Pizza Hut. The, the same-store sales were, were negative because Domino's had come in and was, you know, building this whole new category called delivery. And Pizza Hut was not in the delivery business. And so when I went there, Pizza Hut had just gotten into the delivery business and was failing miserably at it. But I worked with our team and we figured out how to grow the delivery business. In fact, you know, we, we more than doubled the sales rather quickly and really turned the Pizza Hut business around. But we had to get into the delivery business mm-hmm. uh, because that's really where the growth was. And
0: by the way, it's that's where the growth is today. So presumably that was a a significant challenge, I mean, certainly in the late 80s when uh, obviously we didn't have smartphones and and apps and a bigger deal. And Domino's, right, they had this 30-minute guarantee at the time. So I I, I have to imagine that put some pressure on Pizza Hut.
1: Well, you know, Domino's was 100% focused on delivery yeah. and, and and pizza was, we called them Red Roof's, was was focused on the dine-in business. So you kind of, you had to totally transform the attitude of the company to say, hey, I've got to get in the delivery business. And you needed to get in the delivery business in the same trade area where you had a uh, a dine-in restaurant. So that means you had to cannibalize yourself. So it was very challenging to get the the franchisees and even the company people to get on board and say, hey, we really have to change to make sure that we grow for the future.
0: How did you, you were still ostensibly in marketing. I mean, this was your, your role. You were, your self-image was as a marketer. You eventually would go to PepsiCo as a marketing executive. Was that sort of the image that others had of you? And and was that kind of where people saw you as a he's the marketing guy? Oh,
1: that's a that's really a great question, because it, it really kind of brings me to one of the pivot points of my career. Uh, yeah, I was definitely a marketing person and, and creative and, and I was different. You know, I I like to have a lot of fun and I was very outspoken in terms of what things need to be done. Mm. And the chairman of PepsiCo was Wayne Calloway. And I got promoted to be the executive VP of marketing and sales for the Pepsi Cola company. So every quarter I would go over and see Wayne. And one time he asked me, he said, David, he says, What do you want to do with your career? Hmm. And I said, Well, I would like to become a division president. And You know, PepsiCo had pizza, KFC, Taco Bell, Frito-Lay, and Pepsi. And I didn't care which one of the divisions I got to run, but I wanted to become a division president. He says, David, you're a really good marketing guy. And I said, but Wayne, I want to be a division president. He said, David, you're a really good marketing guy. And I said, well, I really want to run the whole show. I want to run a division. He says, David, I'll make you president of marketing. We don't have the marketers that we need to have in this company. And you can build that function. I'll make you president of marketing for PepsiCo. Well, that was a great meeting because when I walked out of that office, I knew Wayne thought a lot of me, but I knew he saw me only as a marketing person. And that I, if I was going to become a general manager, I was going to have to demonstrate that I could really have empathy for operations and, and the total business. So I went back and I begged my boss at the time for the chief operating officer role of Pepsi-Cola when that one opened up. And he gave me a shot at that, and uh, I was able to do a halfway decent job at that. And that
0: opened up the door for me ultimately to become president of KFC. You essentially had to make that pivot in into operations to to sort of demonstrate that and and change the perceptions around you that you you were more than than the marketing guy. I mean, I mean, the great place to be, right? Because it's a creative position, but sometimes the the operators don't think of the marketers as, as people who could lead companies.
1: Yeah. By the way, I was not just a a marketing person. I was an advertising with. A, I was a marketing right. person with an advertising background, and I didn't have an MBA. Right. So you know that was you know I think that made it harder for people to see me as a as a general business person. Um, so I did have to get out of my comfort zone, but you know I found when I went into the operating role that. I was just very open and honest with all the operating people. And I said, listen, I don't know operations like you do. I don't know my way around a bottling plant like you do, but I know you know this business cold and I need you. And together we can figure out what needs to be done and really improve our operations. And you could really help me do that, but I can't do it without you. So And so I brought in all the top operators at Pepsi Cola Company, asked them what was working, what wasn't working, And we develop new processes and new ways to distribute our products because we work together. And I learned a big lesson there is that, you know, if you're vulnerable and you tell people, I need you, guess what? They'll get behind you. Yeah. If you go in and you try to fake it and act like you knew more than them and that you're the person that's at the top, they'll stiff arm you in their own way.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of something that that, uh, another guest we've had on the show, Mark King, um, who you may know, the, the, the current CEO of Taco Bell said, um, he said, your job as a CEO is not to have the answers, but to find the people who, who do have the answers.
1: I couldn't agree more. And I'm so glad that he he said that. And that's one of the reasons why when I was doing the operating job, I left on, you know, Monday morning, came back on Saturday. But every morning I would do these roundtables uh, in the bottling plants with the people on the front line. And I had two experiences that were really seminal. The first was, was I went into this Baltimore plant, and it was our toughest plant. And I went into this place, and everybody was bitching about how bad things were at the plant. And, you know, this wasn't happening. That wasn't happening. And so I brought them, all the top leaders. And this was a union plant. I brought them in, and I said, okay, let's let's list all the things that are going on wrong here, okay? And, you know— we listened to and I said, I'm going to bring in Rod Gordon and he's the plant manager. and We're going to talk to him about this. OK, and so we brought him in and they talked about all the things that were going wrong. And, and then this one kind of coy guy goes, hey, listen, you, you sound like you're a pretty good guy. He says, but what are you going to do about all this? Hmm. And I said, absolutely nothing. Hmm. I said, the only thing I'm going to do is I'm going to come back in, in six months and see what you guys have done to fix all these problems. And, you know. When I came back six months later, that team was waiting for me, and they couldn't wait to show me all the great things that they'd done. Mm -hmm. You know, But I think you really have to shift accountability and ownership to the people who can really make it happen. And then another thing that happened to me in one of these roundtables I had is I was in St. Louis, Missouri. And I think this actually is the most similar moment in my career. I was talking to a group of route salesmen, about what was working in merchandising and what wasn't. And uh, there was like 10 people sitting around this table and everybody started talking about Bob who was sitting directly across from me. Hmm. They were saying, boy, if you want to learn about merchandising, go with Bob into a store. He'll show you how to get the facings. He'll show you how to do the point of purchase. He'll show you how to talk to customers and build relationships. One guy said, I learned more from Bob in one day Then I learned my first two years on the job and everybody was saying Bob was amazing. Hmm. So I look across the the table and there's Bob and he's crying. Hmm. He literally had tears in his eyes and I go, Bob, these people are heaping all this Hmm. praise on you. Why are you crying? And he said, you know what? He said, I've been in this company for 47 years. I'm retiring in two weeks and I didn't know people felt this way about me. And that hit me in the gut. Like you can't believe. And I said to myself, From this day forward, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that the Bobs of the world are recognized and valued for what they do. The thought of somebody being that good and not feeling appreciated for so long really just, it it, it sickened me. And the other thing was, is this guy was so good at what he did, if people really would have had their eyes open towards that, he could have maybe taken on even more responsibility
0: and spread his talents. So that experience, and you've written about this in, in your books, um, actually was a seminal moment, as you describe it, because at that point, you decided to make that your North Star, your priority as a leader, that you would focus on recognition, which seems like a no-brainer, right, that, that every leader should, should do that. But actually, it takes a lot of work and focus and effort to do that, because a, as a leader, you have thousands of things um, coming across your desk. But to focus on recognizing good work, always, constantly, consistently, is really hard.
1: You know, it it really is, but nothing will have a bigger payout. And I was blessed because I got the opportunity to go become the president of KFC shortly after that experience. And when I went to KFC, KFC was sort of the ugly duckling of the PepsiCo family. It had been acquired, but it hadn't had sales growth for a number of years, the profits were were stagnant, and I was brought in to turn around the business. And at the time, the franchisees hated the company and the company hated the franchisees. The the work Hmm. environment was terrible. So I knew I needed to do something to change the game. And I, I wanted to show people that I was a different kind of leader and that we were gonna really change our attitude as it relates to working together. And I thought recognition could be the big key driver. So I wanted to have a really great and fun way to recognize people because, you know, when I went to KFC, I was coming in from PepsiCola and all the franchisees hated the people from Pepsi. They Mm -hmm. saw them as blue suits, white shirts, red ties, very stiff, but I was not that way. And I wanted to demonstrate to them that, hey, I'm not just another Pepsi guy. So I wanted to have a fun way to recognize people and I found out that this guy in IT was giving away these rubber floppy chickens at the monthly meeting that he had. So I went to him and said, you know, I want to make recognition a big deal, it, would it be alright with you if I, I took your floppy chicken and made that the recognition award for the president of KFC? And he said, sure, you could do it. You know, And so I took these rubber chickens and when I went into the store, I would, you know, see a a original recipe cook and the quality was great. And I would whip out my rubber chicken and I'd number it and then I'd write on it and say, you know, you know, Ralph, you know, our original recipe is critically important. Quality is the most important thing we do. Thanks for being a great original recipe chef for the last 18 years. I appreciate what you do. I would sign it. Okay, I'd take a picture of him. And I'd say, I'm going to send you this picture framed. You can throw it in the trash if you want, but your picture is going to go on my wall, okay? Because I'm going to fill my office walls up with people who are making it happen uh, for our customers. And, you know, it was amazing the power of this rubber chicken. I mean, people would laugh, cry, but they love getting this rubber chicken. And I have to tell you, it was the thing that I think really helped me turn around KFC, hmm. because people saw that I was going to be different and I valued recognition. And then what happened is people saw the power of recognition. Then everybody else came up with their own individual recognition awards. Yeah. And they started giving them out. And recognition became the big behavioral driver that we had in the company. And, you know, people always ask me, how did you turn around KFC? And, and you know, the finance people would tell you, well, it was, you know, you had baked chicken, crispy strips, right. uh, pot pie, all these new products. And I say, yeah, that's true. But I think what turned around KFC was unleashing the human spirit of people.
0: You know, one of the things that few people realize, especially, you know, at a company like KFC, is that to be the head of KFC you are leading employees who work for the corporate entity, right? But you're also essentially running a trade association of hundreds of franchise owners because those those employees who work at the KFC are working for that franchise owner, essentially. They're not working for the CEO of, of KFC. And so it's a lot of people management. It's a lot of ego management. A lot of the franchise owners are small business owners. They're very proud. Um, they don't like corporate meddling in their affairs, rightfully so. Um, and there are a lot of competing views on how the corporate entity should operate. And, and you're getting all that incoming as the head of the division. How, how, how did you kind of deal with competing egos and, you know, folks who were sort of trying to tell you how to do your job? Was it a little bit about ego management?
1: Well, I guess to a certain extent it was. What I looked at was a situation that that I was walking into. I was walking into a situation where nobody was working together and people had all kinds of animosity against each other. And the company had failed because it hadn't worked with franchisees. Hmm. So I knew I had to change the tone. So I told my leadership team, I said, let me tell you something. I love franchisees. You're going to work with franchisees. It's going to be key to us turning them around. If you have any issues with the franchisees, come talk to me and we'll figure it out. But together, we've got to turn this business around and we've got to get our franchisees making it happen with us. Because if we don't get them to go with us, we'll be in the same position next year. And you're right about franchisees. They have real trust issues with corporate owners a lot of times. They don't feel like they're listened to. You know, so what I did is I went around the country. KFC had nine regional associations and I had uh, meetings at every one of those associations and said, OK, we've got a challenge here. We've got to turn this business around. I want you guys to get together in groups of eight and come back to me and tell me what you would do if you were me hmm. and, you know, what you would do if you were the, the CEO of KFC. And, you know, I got their input and then I said, OK, this is what you told me. This is what we're going to do. And I played it back to him. Now, by the way, their insights were basically the same as mine. Hmm. You know, and and in fact, probably more grounded and more facts than what I could at a relatively yeah. short period of time. And then I would just sing from the mountaintops what they've done to help us grow the business. You know, like we had a franchisee develop crispy strips. And, you know, it was a, a franchisee who was doing it in a test market on his own without telling anybody down in Arkansas. Well, I had my marketing guy come in to me and say, can you believe those guys did a test market without telling us? And I said, how's it doing? And he said, well, the sales are up 9%. And I said, well, get your butt here, over here. We're going to Arkansas right now. Mm-hmm. And we went down to Arkansas. We learned about the product, what they were doing with it, how to build our supply chain around it on a national basis. We rolled that thing out. Our sales went up 8%, okay? And in the old days, That franchisee would have been just chastised and killed for innovating and coming up with his new products. I also created a chef kitchen. I got the franchisees that were most passionate about food, and I got them to come into Louisville, And with their recipes, we would try all kinds of new products with our R&D team. We'd eat so much food, guy. We'd have to go home and take a nap at at 4.30 after we eat all this food. But you know what? We developed our chicken pot pie from that, which was Hmm. very successful and still in the marketplace. But it came from this uh, chef council. And, you know, once people see how much you care about the business and how much you care about what they have to offer, they're going to give you their heart and soul. Yeah.
3: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Most of us spend our days wondering where the time has gone, wishing we had just one more hour in the day to go for a run, take a nap, read a book, be more present for a friend, or all of the above. And the best way to make sure there's time for what's important is to, well, spend the time figuring out what that is. Therapy can help you figure out what's important so you can spend more of your life doing it. Therapy isn't just for those who have experienced trauma. It's also so helpful for learning how to set boundaries and empowering you to become the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule, and totally online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire so you can get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not totally connecting, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash wisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot com slash wisdom.
0: I, I want to go back to something that that happened a few years earlier, and it's about risk taking. Um, and it may not sound that risky to people listening, but it, it was hugely risky because it you know it's millions, hundreds of millions of dollars are involved in unveiling a new product, and you were. You're credited with actually inventing a product that I think I'm one of the few people who really loved, actually, Crystal Pepsi. I liked it. (laughs) I remember it. I liked Crystal Pepsi. Um, But it was a failure um, for a variety of reasons. And and, and maybe some of those reasons aren't clear. But why do you think that product didn't work?
1: Well, first of all, I have to give you a little backdrop on it. You know, I got just moved into uh, the chief marketing role from Pizza Hut uh, to the to head Pepsi Cola marketing, and you know the first thing you got to do is assess what's going on in the category. And I saw that all these clear products were growing rapidly. You know, clearly Canadian was really a hit. Yeah, a lot of the water products were taken off, flavored waters, and so I just was sitting in my office one day looking out, and I said, you know, what if what if we came up with a clear Pepsi, and I thought, gosh, that would be so shocking. And then I called up the chairman of PepsiCo, Roger Enrico. And I said, what if we did a clear Pepsi? He says, you know, that's a really good idea. Hmm. Go out and talk to customers and see what they think. So we go out and share it with customers and consumers. And they loved the idea. They loved it. Yeah. They absolutely loved it. It was unbelievable. (laughs) In fact, we quickly developed the product. Okay. And we put it into Test Market in, in, in Boulder, Colorado. And the day the product came off the bottling line. It was the feature story on the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather. He said, today in Boulder, Colorado, wow. PepsiCola launched a Crystal Pepsi. Now, let me tell you something. At that point... Guy. I thought I was a genius. You
0: had the biggest okay. winner in America. Yeah. I
1: had the biggest winner, the biggest idea I've ever had. People were shipping Crystal Pepsi from Colorado to different states, just like they did Coors Beer at one point mm. in time. This was a home run. So now what is what happens at Pepsi if you got a big idea? What do they you have go to do? Big. You got to go big. You got to go big. And guess where you go the biggest? <laughs> Super Bowl. Now, I (laughs) developed this product with my team back in in the summer. So I had in six months, I got to get this product to test market and then get it to national by the time you have the super bowl so i'm like a heat-seeking missile this product is great and so now i got to get the pepsi bottlers together now these are the franchise owners okay and here's where i learned my lesson that i that helped me a lot when i became president of kfc i went to these guys and i said here's this product you got to taste it well they taste the product they said david this is a great idea there's only one problem and I said, what's that? And they said, it doesn't taste enough like Pepsi. Hmm. And I say, well, we're calling it, you know, Crystal Pepsi, uh, but we want it to be a lighter cola flavor. We don't want it to taste exactly like Pepsi-Cola because, because it's just, you know, it's it's it, it'll just cannibalize mm-hmm. our business. Let's bring in a new user group. And they go, yeah, David, but you're calling it Pepsi. It doesn't have enough Pepsi-Cola flavor notes. And I, I said, Yes, but we want to get incremental users and I just totally blew them off. Hmm. I totally didn't really look hard enough at what their real issue was. So, anyway, we end up, you know, launching this product on the Super Bowl, okay? And it's the first product in the history of Pepsi Cola that was ever introduced at a premium price. Now, this really made me mad because I wanted to get a lot of trial on this product. Yeah. I wanted to have lower pricing, but the bottlers, they charged more for it. And I said, why are you charging a premium price? And they said, look, David, this is a really good idea. People are gonna try it, but they're not gonna come back and buy it again. So we might as well make a profit while we put it in the store, wow. okay? So we launch it and we launch it on the Super Bowl and it got massive trial. But the repurchase of the product was extremely low. Guess why, Guy? Because it didn't taste like Pepsi. Didn't taste enough like (laughs) Pepsi, okay? So I'm sitting here with the greatest idea I've ever had. I didn't listen to people who knew more about the business than I did and their gut instincts, and franchisees have great gut instincts, and I forced this product in. I not only forced the product in, but our head of R&D and I, we, we worked night and day to get this thing done, but we didn't do enough quality control testing, okay? So in some parts of the country, the product didn't have the clarity that it needed to have. It was a little cloudy, okay? So Saturday Night Live did a parody of it where they basically poured the Crystal Pepsi on mashed potatoes, okay? (laughs) It was like, it was horrifying. I'm sitting there watching Saturday Night Live, you know, live, which nobody does now. But anyway, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, but this product, when we developed it, was listed as one of the top 10 innovations of the year. Okay? And then in 2000, Time Magazine looked back on all the marketing uh, products. Mm. And, and I think it was in the top 10 list of failures of the last century. Okay? So I went from being a genius to a real dummy in a hurry.
0: So in 1997, PepsiCo spun off its food brands, chief among them KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut, into a company that is today known as Yum! Brands. And David Novak became that company's president, working closely with his friend and mentor, Andy Pearson.
1: And we were spun off for reasons. We were seen as sort of the, you know, the we were a drag on PepsiCo's earnings by Wall Street because you had to put a lot of capital in the restaurants. Right. Everybody said, you need to focus on packaged goods. Uh, the restaurant business should be spun off so that they can focus solely on the restaurants, And that was the, the, the thinking behind the business. And the restaurants had been very underperforming. Poor same-store sales, poor return on investment capital. So, you know, I had the opportunity to do what my daughter at that time would have called being a a gigantic do-over. You know, we had this great company, three great brands, 22,000 restaurants, 80% of our business was in the United States. And I I had the chance to take that company, create a total new culture, get focused on what really matters in the restaurant industry, and really build a a world-class company. And boy, did we have a lot of fun doing it.
0: You, um, This was also a chance for you, as you say, to really kind of Put in practice all of these, these things that you'd learned over the course of your career and the practices that you had used in other places, but to do it at a much bigger scale at YUM. And you wrote a book about it based on this management course that you integrated into YUM and, and into the training programs there. I think it was called Taking People With You. Is that, was that the name of the program?
1: Yes, that was it. You know, one of the things that Andy Pearson did for me was he opened up all kinds of doors. And just as we were getting ready to take our company public, he set up a meeting with he and I and and Jack Welch. And so I was so excited about this, you know. Yeah,
0: Jack Welch of GE, the biggest CEO in the world. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I took my notepad in there and, and I'm asking him all kinds of questions. And the last question I asked him, I said, what would you do if you were me going out and starting this new company, how would you spend your time? He said, you know, David, when I became CEO of GE, I immediately started cutting costs because I knew we had to have fewer, better jobs. I knew we had to get our cost structure right. But I quickly got this nickname that I'm not too proud of, which was Neutron Jack. Hmm. It's because I was blowing up everything. And worse yet, people didn't know why I was doing everything. The people in the company just thought I was sort of a loose cannon. He said, so th- what I would do is, if I were you, is, is find a way to get out and, and to talk about what kind of company you want to build, what your culture is going to be, let people know who you are and what you're all about. And so that really was a powerful uh, learning for me because just before we were spun off, Roger Enrico had asked me to develop a training program for high potential Pepsi executives. Mm-hmm. and And I had finished it off. It's called Taking People With You. And I was about ready to give it when I heard about the spinoff. And so I canceled the program and I just kind of put the program in my drawer. But after I heard Jack's advice, I went back, pulled out that training program, tailored it towards the restaurant industry and began my journey to start teaching it around the world. And I had my first Taking People With You program with uh, eight general managers in Europe. And guess what? Everything Jack Wells said was right. People wondered you know, what our culture was going to be, you know, what I'm like, what our strategy are going to be. And I was able to talk about that and also get to know each one of them. And the other thing I had people do was come to the program with the single biggest thing that they're working on that could grow our company and, and improve our stock performance. And so I, I learned what the big projects were when I had these uh, leadership seminars. So the only problem was, is that I spent three days and I only reached eight people. Yeah. So I decided to scale the program and started doing it with 50 people. And I ended up doing it to over 4,000 people at, at Yum Brands. And the last one I did was in China with 100 uh, uh, leaders in, in China. And it was so powerful. And people would say, gee, David, how could you spend so much time teaching leadership and focusing on that? I said, it's the most efficient thing I do. Hmm. I get to know all of our people. This is a people business. you got to get your people capability right if you're ever going to satisfy customers and make money. I get to understand what the biggest projects are that people are working on. I get to help them develop a plan on how to make it happen by taking people with you. I couldn't spend my time more efficiently.
0: Well, one of the things that you emphasize in this training program in the book was the idea that that a leader has to know how to motivate and build teams. You've talked about recognition is a, is a key part of that, recognizing good work. But yeah. h- how did you help leaders figure out how to do that?
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing I talked about was getting your mindset right. You have to be an avid learner. You have to believe that things can get done. Get your mindset right. But the big premise that that I had in terms of taking people with you is you have to apply a marketing approach to taking people with you. You have to understand your people just like you would want to understand your customers. So I always ask the question, what perceptions, habits, and beliefs do you need to build, change, or reinforce to grow the business? So ask that same question in terms of what perceptions, habits, and beliefs do you need to change, build, or reinforce to take people with you? And this will help you understand what the barriers are, what the challenges are, so that when you're developing an initiative, you can attack those barriers head on. The other thing that I I really believe, and it's a law of leadership, is no involvement, no commitment. If you don't get people involved and ask them what they think, Mm -hmm. they won't be committed. They have to have ownership. They have to have that ownership.
0: I want to ask you about... Your, new, your newest book because you, you have a leadership institute and you've got your own leadership podcast and, and you've written other books around this topic of leadership and with a focus on the idea of almost like serving the people that you work for. In other words, what I took from, from your book so far is that I don't think you saw yourself as the boss of all of these people, but rather that they were your boss in a sense.
1: I really believe that when you're the leader, it's a privilege. I always talk about the privilege of leadership. You ultimately have to make the final decision. But there's a real difference between a leader that constantly says I versus a leader who says we. Mm -hmm. And I, I really believe in the we part of the equation. And what I try to really show people how to do is to go from me to we. And, you know, that's the key to leadership. That's how you get people fired up. That's how how people are motivated and and they want to be all they can be. And part of this is taking an active interest in other people's development. It's one thing to have your own success, but I think the most successful people help other people succeed. And I'm passionate about this because our world is in dire need of better leadership. Mm. You know, Eighty percent of people aren't engaged when they go to work. You've seen all the numbers about people who, are, who would like to change their job and go to a different job and they're not happy. I think this is just an absolute problem of leadership.
0: So let's dive into this idea of self-coaching uh, because I think the, the, the book comes from this idea, the premise is that so many people, and there's so much research around this, are not happy at work. And one of the things that you begin with in the book is, is the idea that we all need to ask ourselves questions to begin this, this process of self-coaching, that we need to ask ourselves, for example, what is getting in the way of my joy? So walk me through how you begin to become your own coach.
1: Well, I think it's so important that you begin to become your own coach because your life and career is too important to delegate it to somebody else. And if you look at what's going on today with everybody working virtually, there's less coaching going on than ever before. So you got to take ownership on this and you can't delegate it. So the thing that's critical is you have to build self-awareness. And one way to do that is to really understand what your joy blockers are and what your joy builders are. Okay. We have all kinds of exercises in this book, but one of the things we ask people to do is to write down the joy blockers in their life. What happens in their worst day? What are the things that you do or people do to you that absolutely sap you and take your joy away? And then write down your joy builders. What are your best days? When do you have the most fun? When do you feel most gratified? What are you doing when you're the happiest? Okay, and... I think that begins to help you really have a better understanding of who you are and what makes you tick. And then it's really important to then say, okay, when I think about my future, what's the single biggest thing that I can do that's going to give me joy? Wouldn't you like to be like Warren Buffett where you say you tap dance to work every day? Mm Why is that? He loves business. He loves everything that he does. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he just attacks work every day, and it's because he found his joy. I found my joy in, in marketing and consumers and food, but I think every person needs to find that joy. And, and if you're living in a life where your joy is being blocked, you know, you got enough pain, you're going to change.
0: You actually do some simple things every day. Is part of your practice, because I think reading between the lines, you you acknowledge that like everybody, you know, we all have a tendency to be negative, to be pessimistic. But there are things you do on a day-to-day basis to remind yourself to think in a positive way. What are some of the things you do?
1: Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. You know, your brain will retain a negative thought three times more than a positive thought. So what I do every morning is I wake up, And I do a gratitude journal, you know, and I write down, you know, three to 10 things that make me grateful. And it's all based on this concept that I learned from Larry Sin, who's really the father of culture. And it's a concept called the mood elevator. You know, we make our worst decisions when we're angry, revengeful and frustrated. We make our best decisions when we're in a state of gratitude. So each day, what I try to do is get myself moving up that mood elevator so I can get to as close to grateful as I can before I embark on my my day and at least get above the line, which is curious and interested, okay? And, you know, but I find that to be important. The other thing that I think is very important is I think your physical well-being is important. So I make sure I work out every day and do it in the morning so I, I'm not wondering when I'm going to work out. I get the workout out of the way so... You know, when, when I go to work, I'm feeling grateful, I'm feeling fit, and I'm ready to go. I'm not, you know, I'm not stumbling to the coffee pot. Yeah.
0: Do you, do you believe that leadership is a sort of an, an intrinsic trait, or do you think that everyone has the capacity to learn how to become a leader?
3: I
1: think that everyone can lead in their specific job. Okay, not everybody's going to be CEO. But if you're an administrative assistant, you can be proactive. You can do things before people ask you to do it, and that's what leadership is: being proactive, taking the lead. You know how to do your job better than anybody else. Do it. Don't wait for somebody to tell you what to do. Uh, you know, I think that's that's what leadership is all about. I believe leaders can be developed. You're not a born leader. You go through a lot of hard knocks in life. Yeah. And, 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 you know, but you, the first thing you got to do is you got to be, be really good at what you do. You have to be good at what you've chosen to do and be good at doing that job, having a skill that everybody sees you doing well. And then when you can do that skill extremely well, you get to teach other people how to do the skill. And that's when you take on managerial skills. And then that's when you got to learn how to lead and and take people with you. And I think that can be developed over time.
0: I know one thing. I imagine had a huge impact on two two things that had huge impacts on your life. One was um, the birth of your daughter. She was she was born ten weeks premature, and there was concern that her entire life would be affected by it. And and the other was your your cancer diagnosis, which you you beat, and today you are healthy and and strong. And but I have to imagine that those two experiences really kind of helped to frame in your mind what what matters. What's
1: important? I think, you know, my wife is a type one diabetic. So she told me when we got married that we would never have children. And then after nine years, she came to me and said, David, I want to have a child. And I said, you told me we couldn't have it. I I don't want to risk you. And she says, I've been to the doctor. They think I can have the baby. So she goes through a very tough uh, pregnancy, had toxemia, bed rest, and then has Ashley 10 weeks premature. Mm. I mean, you know, when I first met with the doctor, he said she could have brain problems, lung problems, kidney problems, heart problems. It was amazing. She had three IVs at her. Mm. And mm. I looked at her and I thought she was the most beautiful thing I'd ever yeah. seen in my life. Yeah. I gave her my finger and she squeezed my finger. And I told everybody in the room that she was going to make it. Mm. Okay, and I was told that kids will stay alive if they know you're there. And so I did audio tapes uh, in those old cassettes, you know, and when I wasn't there and I was getting a little sleep, I had the, the neonatal nurses play the audio tapes. I found out the first color that a baby sees is red. So I got her a red happy apple that she gives to her kids today. Okay. And, you know, she made it and we took her home in doll clothes after 23 days. And, but my wife She had diabetes retinopathy. She couldn't see. It was like looking through wax paper. Mm -hmm. And she's had all kinds of struggles as a diabetic. And you never get a day off as a diabetic. And you don't have a child easily as a diabetic, and you never get a day off in your life. And Right now, my wife is, you know, working through a a minor stroke, just fell and broke her arm, and had a seizure. I just got her out of the hospital, okay? Mm -hmm. But man, this, all of it puts things into perspective. Uh, And then, you know, I guess five years ago, I got diagnosed for cancer. Uh, And it was an amazing story. I met with this pizza franchisee who knew I was about to retire. And he came to me and wanted me to take this uh, restaurant company public. And I told him I didn't want to do it. I wanted to get out of the restaurant business and focus on leadership. And I said, what have you been doing? The last couple years and he had founded Lone Star Steakhouse and uh, Del Frisco's and he said well I, I survived stage four breast cancer hmm. and I said what I didn't know men could get breast cancer he said yeah I had a double mastectomy so I go home and tell my wife that and she tells me I didn't know that and I said I know so as I mentioned earlier, I work out every day. So I go, I'm working out and I, I always take my shirt off when I work out because my wife doesn't want me to come up with a sweaty t-shirt when I sit <laughs> in the kitchen chairs, okay? And then I put the shirt back on, but you know, I'm aware of my body. And one day I feel underneath my left nipple, a pea. It's like a, almost like a, a marble, hmm. but it's a tiny little marble, the size of a pea. Hmm. And I go to the, the doctor and I tell the doctor uh, about the story with Jamie, Jamie Coulter. how He had the breast cancer and, and he laughed. He said, you don't have breast cancer, David. Uh, that's a sebaceous cyst. Don't worry about it. Hmm. And so I did myself a little self-coaching. You know? I said, I'm going to find out for myself. And then I went uh, and had a mammogram and an ultrasound. And the, the nurse told me they'd get back to me in 24 hours after I did this. Okay? Hmm. And I go out the next day and I go to my mailbox and guess what I get a letter from Jamie Coulter the guy who had told me about his breast cancer okay he congratulates me on my career and is wishing me all kinds of success and I come back and I tell my wife Wendy I say Wendy I'm a very positive person you know this okay but I know I have breast cancer and I found out the next day I had breast cancer wow I had a stage 3A tumor I had an 11 lymph nodes I had to have a partial mastectomy, wow. and I went through radiation and, and chemo. But that's probably a pretty good example of self-coaching and following yeah. your gut, okay? But it, it's also an example of you never know what life's going to deal you. But I think that that, you know, I never, ever once thought about dying. Hmm. I always felt like I would live... And I was going to attack this and do everything I could to be successful. I developed my action plan and went about doing it. And uh, and maybe I was in denial, but you know, it, it. Thank God, it worked out.
0: And I think that that your daughter, who was born ten weeks premature, now runs a a, a business with you, right?
1: Yeah, we have a, what we call the Lift a Life Foundation. And it's, uh, she's the executive director, CEO of that foundation. We've got the Wendy Novak Diabetes Center. Hmm. I focus on leadership development. And then we also focus on, uh, hunger, early childhood education and veteran support. So Ashley is, you know, really, you know, running this like a business, making sure that we use the blessings that we have to help other people. And I think it gives us a tremendous joy to know that we can help people and, uh, you know, I've, I've read a lot lately, and I'm sure you have, that the happiest people in the world are other-directed. And I can tell you for sure, you know, I, I'm always happier when I know I'm, I'm doing things for other people.
0: It's been a long journey from moving from trailer to trailer um, 32 times.
1: <laughs> well, it, it, it sure has, but it has been, you know... The, a journey of a lifetime no pun intended it's just been you know to me I can't believe I get to do what I do and I'm focused on my joy builders you know I I'm focused on leadership development I'm focused on my family and I'm focused on my golf game okay and those are the three things that I really have a lot of fun with and anything that gets in the way of that I I basically say no to Um, and you know it's 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 a it's a lot of fun to be able to be in that kind of position
0: That's David Novak, co-founder and former CEO of Yum! Brands. By the way, next time you're out on a hike, look for those little metallic plates hammered into the rocks. They're ordnance survey plates, the kind of work that David Novak's dad used to do. Also, if you want to hear more of David's advice and his conversations with some incredible leaders, check out his podcast. It's called How Leaders Lead with David Novak, and it's available everywhere. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions.